Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. Every state in the United States has a state tree. California and Nevada actually have two state trees each. Over the course of this show, I've been trying to make my way through as many state trees as possible, and I've covered somewhere around 35 states. The going gets easier when multiple states are all in love with the same tree. Today, I'll be covering two more states and their favorite tree, as both North Dakota and Massachusetts love the American elm. For starters, it's quite impressive that two states so far apart have a thing for the same tree. But admittedly, I am going to be focusing more heavily on the connection Massachusetts has with the elm. This state just has a lot more history with the tree, and I did just move to Massachusetts a month ago, so this is also about me investing myself in my new local community. Regardless of historical significance, American elms are just beautiful, stately trees. They have long been a choice tree to plant throughout urban areas. Picture the idyllic neighborhood road with trees on either side whose crowns spread out like an umbrella to shade our communities. Elms are one of the best trees to create that scene. Because they have been planted everywhere, elms always seem to be around for some of the most important events in American history, especially with the history of the American Revolution as it got its start around the city of Boston. But unfortunately, like the many events it has witnessed, the American elm is itself becoming just a part of history. Introduced diseases have led to disturbing disappearances of elm trees in the United States, in many ways similar to tragedies that have stricken the American chestnut and the ash. Let us see what the elm has seen and reflect on what is causing its terrible demise. There are a number of ways to easily identify trees based on specific features. Maples tend to be iconic based on their pointed leaves. Apple trees are noticed because they've got apples hanging from the branches. Elm trees are often most recognizable by their shape, either compared to an open umbrella or a vase with a flared lip. They're not necessarily super tall trees, but they make up for height with a broad crown that can spread as wide as the tree is tall. This is what makes elms so popular to plant as shade trees along roadsides. While these trees are most remarkable from afar or underneath, there are some interesting close-up details to take note of. Elm bark is deeply furrowed with ropey ridges that lend the tree additional personality. Elms are broadleaf deciduous trees, meaning they don't have needles and they shed these leaves in the winter. The leaves are about half the size of my hand and oval. You know, if you picture a leaf, you're probably pretty close to an elm. But the leaves do have some fascinating niche details. The edges are doubly serrated, meaning they don't just have sawtooth edges, but the sawteeth have sawteeth on top of them. And the bases of the leaves are oblique, meaning where the leaf attaches to the twig is asymmetric, a little lopsided. Again, super minor details, but there's just such nuance to what many might just see as a very leaf-shaped leaf. Elm flowers are usually nothing to write home about. They're not showy, they don't have petals, and they reproduce by just blowing their pollen into the wind. 
They're kind of cute close up, but you won't notice them way up in the branches. When the flowers are pollinated, the tree creates a fruit called a samara. Samaras are fruits that are also found on maples and ashes, papery sheaths surrounding the seed, but all three of these tree samaras are shaped differently. Maples have those helicopter wings, ashes have a single long wing, and elms are kind of just disc or wafer shaped. Like the flower pollen, they float away on the wind. A very self-sufficient tree, these elms. How American indeed. One last physical detail to touch on is that some elm species, including some American elm individuals, can have these corky wings that grow on the twigs. There's even a specific species of elm native to the American Midwest called the cork elm, due to the commonality of this feature. Now, I'm focusing on the American elm specifically, but it's not the only fascinating elm in this group. I'm not going to do another episode on any one other elm, so let's take some time looking at other species and the group as a whole. Elms as a group belong to the elm family, Olmaceae. There's not a whole lot in the elm family aside from elms. An interesting tree called the hackberry used to be an Olmaceae, but genetic research in the last few decades has led botanists to reassign it to the plant family Cannabaceae, which is also home to cannabis and hops. But now let's focus on the elm genus, Olmus. Quick tangent about the name. European languages are generally split between the Germanic and Latin language families. There's of course exceptions and nuances that I won't get into today, but typically our English words are derived from either Germanic or Latin roots, with not a whole lot of connection between them. What's interesting is that the name elm is derived from both Germanic and Latin roots. Let me show you what I mean by all this. The name oak has a Germanic origin. In modern German, it is called eika, while in Latin, it is quercus, two completely different words. The name pine has a Latin origin. In Latin, it is pinus, while in German, it is called kiefer. The name elm is ulmus in Latin, that's the genus name, while in German it is ulmo. Latin and Germanic language groups all have a shared origin, a prehistoric language system spanning from Europe to India that we don't know the name of, but refer to as Proto-Indo-European. This language at some point splintered into regional families that each underwent massive changes. But despite the major division between Latin and Germanic languages, the elm kept its name. Elms have been known as elms for a very long time. Now that you've allowed me to geek out about linguistics, there are around 40 species of elm found around the world. The American elm specifically, Ulmus americana, is the most prominent elm species in North America. It is found growing just about everywhere east of the Rocky Mountains, which is a significant detail. Typically, the western extent of eastern tree species is the Great Plains. There's not a whole lot of trees growing in the Great Plains. But the American elm crosses those vast open spaces, which makes it very special for those regions. This is a major contributor to why North Dakota claims it as its state tree. Another prominent North American elm is the slippery elm, Ulmus rubra. This tree can be found in most forests east of the Great Plains and, from my experience, is a little bit more common in the woods than the American elm. The name slippery elm is in reference to a sort of slimy inner bark layer, 
as opposed to some exterior feature of the tree. This is actually a confusing detail for many students of dendrology because the slippery elm's leaves are quite rough like sandpaper and not slippery at all. Over in Europe, the most prominent species is likely the witch elm, or Scots elm, scientifically Ulmus glabra. It's more closely related to the slippery elm than the American elm, but it is similar to the American elm in that its wide range across its continent of origin makes it widely identifiable. Over in Asia, we have the Siberian elm, Ulmus pamilla, which is a lot smaller and bushier than other grander elm species. Regardless of physical presence, it is still seen as impressive due to its resilience. It is able to survive rather inhospitable sections of Siberia and even stretches into the Gobi Desert. These trees have been heavily introduced to North America and other regions. I see them quite often planted along the edges of farms and pastures as a windbreak in order to provide a buffer between agricultural lands and rough weather. And one final tree to mention is the Chinese elm, also known as the lacebark elm, and scientifically named Ulmus parvifolia. These trees are native to China, of course, but also Korea, Japan, Vietnam, and stretching as far west as India. These trees are immediately most interesting because of their bark. Most other elms have that furrowed, ropey bark that I mentioned, but the lacebark elm, as the name suggests, has a more multicolored patchwork of flaky bark, like mottled lace patterns. I bring up each of these different species because each of them have some amount of significance in our various human cultures. But I am going to spend most of my time on the American elm, both from the number of stories surrounding it, and how some stories about this elm are intentionally no longer talked about. Specifically, because the American Revolution, like any great political upheaval, had its darker aspects, and the American elm was a part of that. Anytime you cover a tree's influence on human history in North America, you simply have to start with Native Americans. American elms have pretty solid wood, and indigenous peoples certainly used its wood for construction and carving. But for physical purposes, it's likely that the slippery elm would have been more highly valued, and it comes down to why it's called slippery. The mucilaginous inner bark layer is said to have wonderful medicinal benefits, from aiding in digestion, to being a cough remedy, to curing all sorts of other bodily ailments. Slippery elm inner bark does contain chemicals that increase mucus secretion, which could aid in digestive issues, and chewing that material does reportedly soothe a sore throat. But the jury is still out on whether Western medicine considers it legit. You can look for slippery elm supplements at your local natural and health grocery store. Let me know what you think. But while the slippery elm seems to have more tangible value, the American elm reigns supreme in regards to symbolic purpose. Across various native tribes, we see elms being used as council trees. I mentioned council trees in my episode about American oaks. They serve as outdoor, natural gathering places, especially when there's a lot of weight in the purpose of the gathering. Council tree isn't actually an official term, and the idea of a community gathering around the nearest big tree isn't exclusive to any one native group or even the First Nations of North America in general. Humans just like to spend their time under wide shady trees, like the American elm, and so that's where we gather. 
It's a concept that transcends the lines we create to divide ourselves up, and so it operates as a point where different cultures can come together, like when Europeans started settling their so-called New World. One such cultural meeting witnessed by an American elm was between William Penn and the Lenape or Delaware people in the lands now known as Pennsylvania. Under the watchful gaze of an elm, later known as the Treaty Elm, these two peoples came to an agreement on how to divide up the lands they both used so as to live in harmony and brotherhood. Unfortunately, there was no physical document that was signed by these two parties. It was a verbal agreement, and so some historians dispute the legitimacy of the event. However, there are numerous literary and artistic references to this event with a constant inclusion of a stately American elm as the setting of the meeting. The notable French writer Voltaire even referenced this great treaty, saying of Penn, he began by making a league with the American Indians which were his neighbors. This is the only treaty between those persons and the Christians which has not been sworn to and which has not been broken. Considering the extensive history of the United States not keeping promises with natives, it's refreshing to hear how Penn was so committed to the promises made under the Treaty Elm. Though, admittedly, that commitment only lasted about a generation. William Penn's sons didn't necessarily break the treaty, but they seemingly abused the wording of it. One aspect of the agreement includes a stretch of land, quote, as long as a man can travel in a day and a half. The implication is that this is the distance a man can cross in a day and a half by walking. But Penn's sons decided to run the whole length, thus increasing the amount of land they held to be more than what was intended by the Lenape. This ultimately wouldn't matter in the long term, because everything changed when the colonies went to war against Great Britain. But one important thing to note is that the British so recognized the importance of that treaty elm that they intentionally spared and prevented its destruction when they sought to occupy eastern Pennsylvania. This act would be in direct contrast to how the British treated another significant elm about 270 miles northeast in the city of Boston. The story of the Liberty Elm is not the only instance of forgotten American Revolution lore regarding trees. In my episode on the Eastern White Pine, I discuss the New Hampshire Pine Tree Riot of 1772, something often overlooked in U.S. history classes in favor of more urban events like the Boston Tea Party. This next story is also exceedingly overlooked, but the reasoning is more intentional. In 1646, 16 years after Boston's founding, an American elm was planted in a town square on the south side of the city, about a block east of the famous Boston Common. As the colonial city grew over the next century, so too did the elm, soon becoming a wide, shady gathering place for Bostonians. Now a mature tree, this elm witnessed the rage induced by Britain's new Stamp Act in 1765, which imposed a tax on all paper products in the colonies. This was one of the sparks igniting a long-standing American belief that there should be no taxation without proper representation in government. This was one of the sparks that ignited revolution. Six months after the act was passed, Bostonians would wake to see a stuffed model of a person hanging from the American elm with the initials A.O. written on it, in reference to Andrew Oliver, the British loyalist who collected the stamp tax in the city. Hanging from the effigy of Oliver was a sign that read, What greater joy did New England ever see than a stamp man hanging on a tree? 
Throughout the day, city folk all came and gathered around the tree, celebrating the macabre act of defiance. At one point, the sheriff tried to cut down the effigy, but the crowd denied him the ability to do so. That evening, a local shoemaker and notable riot starter took down the puppet, stuffed it in a coffin, and led townspeople in a parade around the city that ended outside Oliver's house. They then cut off the effigy's head and burned its body in a bonfire made from the wood of one of Oliver's buildings that the rioters had destroyed. The tax collector was able to escape just before the crowd broke into his house, smashed his furniture, and stole all his booze. Similar riots continued over the next week until the more reasonable group, known as the Sons of Liberty, encouraged the violence to cease. But in order to push the revolution along in a more palatable manner, they turned away from riots into gatherings around the elm, which was now adorned with a copper plate, naming it the Tree of Liberty. Following this action, other New England cities would designate their own trees as liberty trees where opposers to British rule would gather or post calls to action. The following year, the Stamp Act was repealed, and the Liberty Elm served as the site of Boston's massive celebration over the decision, with lanterns hanging from just about every branch that could hold it. Over the next decade, the tree would serve as the location for political demonstrations. Many were simply enraged speeches, with more being continued acts of violence. In 1768, a customs commissioner's boat was dragged to the tree, propped up as a judge's bench where a mock trial was held, and subsequently burned down. In 1774, a customs official was tarred, feathered, and brought to the tree with a noose around his neck under the threat of hanging him if he didn't curse the governor, neither of which ended up actually happening. Finally, in 1775, the Revolutionary War broke out in full. In an attempt to weaken the resolve of the colonists, the British cut down the American elm that had served as their rallying point of liberty for the last decade. In the centuries following the violent beginnings of the United States, stories of the Revolution have been told in numerous ways by historians, interpreters, and educators. But all too often, the symbol of the Revolution the American elm, known as the Tree of Liberty, is left unmentioned and unrecognized. To further investigate this issue, I'll send you over to my field reporter in downtown Boston. What do you see there, Thomas? Thanks, Thomas, in the studio. I'm here in downtown Boston at the corner of Washington and Essex. One block east of the Boston Common, it's at this intersection that the American elm, known as the Tree of Liberty, once stood. Today, this corner serves as a busy traffic intersection at the entrance of Boston's Chinatown that bears little resemblance to the political gathering place it once was. Just a couple details of this square hearken to its colonial history, a waist-high stone monument identifying this place as Liberty Tree Plaza, and a young elm tree. Its placard reads, Olmus Morton, Accolade Elm. The original Liberty Tree was an American elm. An encouraging dedication to history, but unfortunately one that is easily overlooked by passersby. From My Favorite Trees Podcast, I'm Thomas in the Field. Back to you. Thanks, Thomas in the Field. Incredible how such a momentous piece of our history receives only so much acknowledgement. The city of Boston actually has a walkable series of historic sites known as the Freedom Trail that passes by places like Paul Revere's house, the site of the Boston Massacre, and Fanel Hall, known as the home of free speech where America held its first town hall meeting. But this trail does not pass by the corner of Washington and Essex 
where the Tree of Liberty once stood. Unsavory as it may be, the acts of aggression that took place under that elm made America the land of liberty that it is today. But this is not the only American elm holding significance for our country. Our first president, George Washington, was a lover of the tree. He had a favorite elm tree in Washington, D.C. that he would sit under and watch the construction of the White House. Legend has it that he also took control of the Continental Army under an elm tree in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Over the years, many urban areas favored the elm when choosing what to plant along roadsides for the aesthetic appeal of how its branches would stretch so far and shade wide areas. New Haven, Connecticut was one such city that took pride in being covered in elms and was once known as Elm City. The trees inspired the Yale Glee Club song Neath the Elms, and many businesses in the city still make references to their historic connection with the tree, such as Elm City Tap House and Elm City Social Club. Oftentimes, elms become a symbol for the communities they grow in. There once stood a massive elm in a small town in Maine named Herbie, that before it died was New England's oldest elm. It was cut down in 2010 at the age of 240, and a couple years later, the historic caretaker of this tree, Frank Knight, passed away at the age of 103. Unbeknownst to Frank, when Herbie was cut down, some of its wood was made into a coffin that now protects his body where he is buried. But as memorable and bittersweet as the story of Herbie is, my favorite named elm has to go to a tree that once grew in Providence, Rhode Island, simply for the name alone. This tree was called Elmo. I have one more story about a significant elm tree that I'd like to tell in full. Around the year 1920, an American elm was planted in Oklahoma City. Over the next several decades, this urban area changed greatly around the tree. Oftentimes when sections of a city are rezoned and paved over, trees get the axe, and if we're lucky, a new tree gets planted. But this elm was left to continue growing as a parking lot was built around it. For a long time, this tree did not receive any special names. It was simply the best place to park your car in the summer because of the shade its branches provided. But everything changed for this tree, and our country, when at 9.02am on April 19, 1995, a Riker truck parked in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building exploded. The Oklahoma City bombing is considered the deadliest domestic terrorist attack in the United States, and prior to 9-11, it was the biggest terrorist attack on U.S. soil, period. 168 people, including 19 children, lost their lives that day. And across the street, an unassuming American elm was shredded by the blast. In the investigations to follow, plans were made to tear what remained of the tree down in order to remove shrapnel that would serve as useful evidence. But the next spring, despite the damage it had received, this elm's small, hard-to-notice flowers successfully bloomed. The tree had survived. As other leads led to the successful identification of the culprit of this heinous act, the plans to tear down the elm were scrapped. And instead, it was lifted up as a symbol of survival a symbol that inspired people to keep moving forward after this tragic event. This elm was named the Survivor Tree, and it now serves as an important aspect of the Oklahoma City National Memorial. 
My family used to live in Oklahoma, and despite how sad this story is, we repeatedly brought friends and family who visited us to the memorial because of how it is so well done. The Survivor Tree helps to tell this story and continues to provide a shady spot for those who come to hear it. In their various stories, the American Elm serves as a bright spot amidst surrounding darkness, freedom, and survival against oppression and senseless violence. And yet, the elm today is more often than not associated with death, as many species are succumbing to a collective threat. Dutch elm disease, nicknamed DED, or DEAD, which is a rude name considering, is a fungal pathogen carried by bark beetles that has been devastating elm populations in North America for over half a century. The pathogen originally comes from East Asia. The disease attacks elms there as well, but Asiatic elm species have been evolving alongside the disease for so long that it's ended up in a continuous stalemate with it for who knows how long. It was brought over to Europe when Asiatic elms were introduced to the continent sometime after the start of the 20th century. It was botanists from the Netherlands that first described it in 1920, hence why the disease is referred to as being Dutch. After a couple of decades, the pathogen managed to make it to North America and began spreading among American elms, slippery elms, and more. The infecting fungus is carried by bark beetles, and when it begins spreading through the vascular system of the tree, the tree forms these patches of material kind of like scabs or scar tissue to block the spread of the disease. But if the disease spreads enough, enough of this tissue is formed that the tree blocks its own flow of sap, ultimately leading to its death. This process doesn't happen immediately. It takes a while to spread and allows the elm to reach the early stages of maturity while preventing it from reaching its full majestic size and form. So while the disease spread throughout the range of the American elm between 1930 and 1960, Americans mourned the loss of yet another eastern forest icon. The Great Die-Off, as it is called, occurred just decades after the loss of the American chestnut, and our cultural wounds were still fresh. By the 1970s, we had lost millions of elm trees. Some scientists are attempting to hybridize our native elm stock with various Asiatic species, as they have that generations-long built-up resistance to the disease. Others are thinking more in the realm of simply replacing our native species on the streets with those East Asian elms. For instance, the Accolade elm planted where the Liberty Tree once stood is a hybrid of two Asian species. Notable American horticulturist Dr. Michael Durr once claimed that the durability of the Chinese elm has made it seem to be the tree of the future. But in the last decade, he's turned around on the topic of elms, speaking about how American species are starting to rebound and great research is being done on breeding new, disease-resistant cultivars that maintain the attractiveness of the original species. So, once again, the elm seems to continue to shine through the darkness. But disease mitigation is an ongoing effort, and one that needs as much assistance as possible if it is to be successful. If you're ever camping in parks or wilderness areas and see signs about not moving firewood, it is to prevent the spread of diseases like DED, as you could inadvertently be transporting insects carrying those diseases while burrowed inside the wood. But together, there is hope to bring back this American icon. An icon that creates a dome of branches over roads and shades our communities. 
a symbol that invites us to gather and demand freedom from oppression by whatever means necessary. A witness to tragic events that inspires us to keep moving forward. A tree that decorates the prairie landscape of North Dakota, where so few other things are willing to live. There's a lot to say about the American elm, but I think it is best said by 19th century Massachusetts writer Mary E. Wilkins Freeman. The elm tree has his field to himself, with his green branches in the summer, his gold ones in the autumn, his tender gold-green ones in the spring, and his branches of naked grace in winter. But always, he was superb. There was not in the whole countryside another tree which could compare with him. He was matchless. In two weeks, I'll be giving the fall season one final send-off with a rather unexpected deciduous species, the larch, sometimes called the tamarack. Larches are conifers in the pine family that do something rather unique to this group. They drop their needles before winter comes. Come back on November 29th to learn about why I get combative when people use the terms evergreen and conifer interchangeably, and how various cultures react to a needle tree that is settling down for a long winter's nap. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is by at Boomerang Brit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees or on Instagram at Tree Podcast. And if you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. <laughs>